The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. We're so happy to have you here with us for this episode of Noggins and Neurons. Pete and I sincerely hope you enjoy these podcast talks as much as we enjoy making them. Before we get into today's topic, here's a recap of our previous episode where we talked about repetitive task practice. In that podcast, we talked about the role of aerobic exercise as it relates to repetitive task practice and improving motor abilities, depression, and cognition. We talked about the relationship of incorporating repetition with improving client and clinical outcomes. We then dove deep into client perceptions of intensity and clinical practitioner perceptions of implementing some of these newer ways of doing therapy. Before Pete shared with us the number of repetitions required for motor change to occur. We hope you'll give that episode a listen and share with us your thoughts, your takeaways as you implement the information into your practices or your recovery plan. So here's a little fun fact. You know, in a lot of these articles, the contact information for the researchers is made available. And I have been known to reach out to researchers over the course of my career, and they do respond to me. And oftentimes, they're very happy, very happy to share their information, some of their PowerPoint slides, you know, stuff that will help you in your practice, which goes back to what you were saying in the beginning, where, where researchers want us using their information. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and start. Okay. Hey, Deb Battistella, how are you? Hey, Pete Levine. I'm great. How are you? Good. How, how's the weather up there in, uh, in upstate, upstate New York? Well, it's not like last weekend when I was 
at the shore and it was 92 degrees. It's cold and rainy here today. How about there in Cincinnati? It's cold and rainy. Mm. Yep. Well, okay. So we had the discussion about about the weather. So what's to, what's our topic today? So today we're going to talk about research. And where are we going to go with that? Have you well, thought about the rabbit hole that you're going to take us down? I do have a few rabbit holes, Great. but they will have to do with research. I think that if we can get people to access research, whether they're a person with brain injury or a clinician or a caregiver or anybody who's interested in this stuff or a student, we care about students as well, without throwing up, that is, if we can have them access it without it being just this incredible migraine for them, I think that it might help the entire universe. So that's what I'm headed towards. Can we figure out ways to get people in, get them out, have it be free, have it be in a way that resonates with them? Something that maybe a research article gets into their bones. So when they treat or they're trying to help themselves recover, they feel that thing. And look, there's been a lot of people that have done this, uh, great, huge, important people that I'm going to talk about that have kind of led us to the righteous path of being evidence-based without throwing up and getting a migraine. That's where we're headed. So something that's doable. Yeah. I'm curious though. So when you look at research, how are you doing it? And what's your go-to website or how do you do it usually? Well, I'm lucky because I teach at a college and I have access to the college database. But when I was preparing for this podcast, I considered the fact that some people don't have access to scientific libraries or you know, through the college. And so I found some places where we can get research, which we'll talk about probably in a minute. But to get to the question that you asked me, I do, so I'll do a scientific library search or Google Scholar is usually where I start. And are you asking how I look at the literature or just where I'm starting? Oh, so that's a good one. So you, a lot of times you'll start with Google Scholar. Mm -hmm. And let's say you find an article. What kind of things are you looking for in that article? Is that, do you start with the title and see if that's interesting or the introduction or what are you looking at? I usually start with the title to make sure that it has some of the keywords that I searched in it. And then I'll pull it up and I look at the abstract right away to see if they explain an overview of what the research was and if they put the conclusion in there. Mm -hmm. I like the conclusion. Yeah. And whether it's supporting the, the topic that I think might be a good topic or not, I still want the results. I also want to know what type of study was done. And if it seems like it's going to meet my needs, then I will start reading it more in depth. So let me just say one thing. A lot of people think that research is only successful if the intervention worked. No, that's not the way it works. Sometimes you fail. I think it was Edison who said that, you know, for a successful thing, you need a hundred failures and that's about the ratio. And so sometimes you have a negative trial. The trial shows that it didn't work. That's good because then the next set of researchers, or when you do it again, you know not to go down that road. Still, for a clinician or somebody who's interested in brain injury recovery, did it work? And then how do I do it? And often that's very frustrating in clinical research. You're not even allowed to have color pictures. We're so used to three-dimensional videos and all this great stuff. And in some ways, that's unfortunate because the videos are compelling, 
but they don't tell you anything about the data. We don't know what's happening on a video. You know, a lot of clinicians will say, well, I saw a video and it worked. You know, maybe the guy got better pain meds. We don't know what happened in the pre-video and the post-video to make it different. So it's frustrating sometimes to look at these little grainy black and white pictures in peer review and try to figure out what they actually did. I agree. And I think that's where the person who understands how to look at the research is our friend and the person who asks good questions. Because sometimes research can be made to look like it's an effective intervention. And if you don't read the full article, you may not learn important information. So, for example, we're doing some research at the college right now. on a, It's a pediatric intervention, so I'm not going to get into all of those details. But the research that we have so far is very limited and vague. And the questions that we ask are, how do we know that positive results are due to the specific intervention that they're saying? Could it be bilateral training? Could it be sensory integration? Could it be X, Y, or Z? Because some of what they describe in the articles that we have contains aspects of other types of interventions that are done. Yeah, that makes it tough to know what's working. Usually what you try to do in clinical research is isolate everything out. Even the meds that they take, you make sure that they continue to take the same meds. They don't start another exercise program. That one of the therapists doesn't get this crazy idea to take a hard left turn on everything so that you know that that the independent variable, and that's the intervention, right? The dependent variable is the outcome. That the independent variable is isolated enough that you know that that's the thing. But you're right, it's it's a sometimes a problem isolating that one thing. Yes. And another problem with the research is replicating. People don't often exactly replicate studies. Mm -hmm. So you, you're saying that if somebody does an intervention, they test it, and then somebody else tries to test the same intervention, are they replicating it accurately? Maybe accurately or maybe ex not exactly. So it's the best, it's the, the strongest and most robust if people exactly replicate. Hmm, interesting, yeah. But everybody has different ideas and questions that they want to ask and try different things. That's so then true. what do you do, Pete, when you're looking at the research and you see these studies that are similar but not exactly the same? Well, you know, the lab that I worked with for a very long time did that quite a bit. So um, one of the things we were known for was imagery or mental practice after stroke. And that's where the person imagines the movement as they did it prior to the stroke to see if that would change the brain and change their movement ability. And we did four or five years of these studies before other people came in and started to say, well, are these guys right? You know, they're claiming these great outcomes, but is there any there there? And so other labs around the world try to replicate them. And I get alerts about these all the time because people will reference articles on which I'm a co-author. So people are still trying to replicate them. And so far, it seems to work. Mental practice, like one of the, it's kind of like mirror therapy. It's one of those things that it doesn't matter who looks at it, it seems to work. Hmm. There's not a lot of those for brain injury. There's only a handful. And that's why, that's why in, in some ways, talking about this stuff is pretty simple because there's not a whole lot of stuff that works. But mental practice, mirror therapy are two things that do work. And, and even if they're not replicating it perfectly, okay, is it still working? Even if they screw it up um, in some way, or they didn't exactly replicate what we did, does it still work? And we've now hit, um, and I think this is true with mirror therapy as well, something I want to talk about, which is meta-analyses or systematic reviews. These are studies of studies. 
So why would we read an individual study or try to read all the studies about mirror therapy? Why not read a meta-analysis that takes into account every one of the 73 studies that looked at mirror therapy and then just look for their clinical bottom line? And imagery, mental practice, and mirror therapy have both reached that threshold. And that's one of the things that you can do to nail whether or not the intervention works or not. Has it reached meta-analysis? Has it reached systematic review? So just start right there. There's no need to dig through all of those individual articles anymore for those topics. You know, once you get into the systematic review or meta-analysis, they'll have the references for all the studies. And there might be one, usually there's a chart that says, this was the study, here were the authors, this was the date it was done, this was the intervention, and these were the, you know, they got good outcomes or they got bad outcomes, or sometimes they're mixed, or sometimes they're still not sure. And then you find that one study and you go, wow, that's the study I want to replicate, or that's the study that I want to use clinically, or that's the study I want to use as a caregiver to help my loved one, to help my loved one. And then you can um, pick out individual studies. But yeah, you have all the studies there. It's in the meta-analysis. You don't have to worry about looking for stuff. Things certainly have changed since I'll tell you that much. So um, you broke up a little bit on this side. I think we had an internet glitch. Things certainly have changed since what? Since I was going to school, there weren't meta-analyses when I was doing my research. Wow. Okay. Back in 1963. Not really that long ago. Wasn't that long ago. Look, I still don't know how old you are. I think I've said my age about 15 times, but I don't want to know. Don't You don't have to tell me. It really doesn't matter. I'm older than you. That's all I need to know. It was just my birthday and I love my birthday. Yeah. I'm 59. Really? Yeah. You were just a kid. I'm just a baby. You are just a baby. No wonder. Mm-hmm. No wonder. This this is um this is why you have this adorable naivete is that you're just really young. Mhm. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Look at us. We're both boomers. How sad. And I know it's sad because my daughter keeps telling me, oh, it's so sad that you're a boomer. They don't like us. Anyway, I better move on. I want to talk about two of my heroes when it comes to how to disassemble or absorb clinical research. First guy's name, he's Canadian. He's the father or one of two fathers of evidence-based practice. And his name is David Sackett. He kind of set the template for everyone. Uh, Passed away in 2015. I'm going to talk about some of the things that he talks about so that if you want to go into research and just pull out what you want to get and then leave and not have to spend your entire life, not get a migraine, not throw up, David Sackett gives us a good way to do that. The other person is Archie Cochran, who was a Scottish doctor. He passed away in 1988, but he was the inspiration, did the same thing Sackett did. What is evidence-based practice? What does it mean to bring research into whatever it is that you're doing? And I'm sure you've heard of the Cochrane Review, which is this ginormous, very highly respected meta-analysis. And we're going to talk about the Cochrane Review. It was named after Archie Cochrane. So let me start with David Sackett. What if you wanted to do a research study to study people reading research? And they've done that. And they found that if you take your scarce reading time, the time that you have, and for MDs, he estimated about an hour a week to read all the research that was coming out. And if you're selective, efficient, and patient-driven, that is, if your patients themselves drive you to the research, you are curious about Mr. Smith's apraxia, an inability to motor plan guy's all over the place. He seems to move well. Why is he apraxic? Why is he not able to move in a way that's fluid, even though he moves really well? 
well, that's a great opportunity to go into the research and look at apraxia. So that's what being patient-driven is in terms of evidence-based practice. You can be evidence-based if you are selective, efficient, and you use your patient population, or if you're a caregiver, the patient that you have at home, or if you are the survivor, you, and just look at that stuff that you find interesting. So I looked up how many individual articles there are per year. In 2020, there were 952,919 medical articles. There's a lot on rehab there, and a lot of it is gonna be brain injury too. So almost a million articles in 2020, almost a million in 2019. It didn't go down to 800,000 until 2015. In 1995, it was about 400,000. So it's a threefold increase. Yeah, there's no way to keep up with all this stuff. And so, you know, what's, what's a clinician to do or what's a student to do? There's a number of good reasons to be evidence-based, according to David Sackett, the godfather of evidence-based practice. Patients are better off. Why? You're using stuff that actually works. He says it's fun. I think I agree with him. It is fun. You can start at any time in your career and continue forever. It's not like you're behind the eight ball. You can start whenever you want to. You're never going to be able to keep up with all the literature. So only read the 2% that's well-researched and likely to be important to you. And that's for a clinician. And I would say 2% of a million articles is kind of a lot. Once you find your niche, though, it would be a much smaller number. But still, even 2% might be an incredibly huge amount of articles. Agreed. That's one of the reasons why I like to go to conferences, because you're with people who care about the evidence. You get immersed in courses and posters where yep. people have done some research and it, it kind of helps energize you. And one thing that I would like to suggest, I know that a lot of people get overwhelmed with the thought of evidence, which is why you mentioned throwing up in migraines. The more, <laughs> the more you do it and the more you learn, it becomes fun, like you're saying, and it's not new. It's only when something is new that it feels more difficult. Yeah, I guess it's like a skill or a muscle and you use it. And the more you use it, the more you get used to it. And it shouldn't be intimidating. Sackett goes on to say it puts you in charge because you decide what questions to ask and you find out the answers. It promotes lifelong self-directed learning. It satisfies rebelliousness because it allows you to question orthodoxies. You can satisfy rebelliousness by allowing you to go right after the whatever it is that clinicians are doing. And I've done this a lot of my career is dedicated to like tipping sacred cows because it gives you this certain power if you're willing to go deeper than other people are. It's a basis for rejecting inappropriate authoritarian statements. And this guy was an MD at the top of his game, still talking about, hey, you know, tip those sacred cows. It gives you a lot of opportunity if you use research as leverage to do it. I like what you're saying here, Pete. In some of my research, when I was preparing for this podcast, I stumbled upon the Winona State University website, mm -hmm. and they have different types of questions that need to be asked and which types of studies are appropriate to answer questions based on what, what discipline you're with. And so there's a really neat chart that we can add to the show notes that talks about the type of clinical question 
and then the su- suggested research design that would be used. And so that gets a little bit deeper into the research, the type of design that there is um, based on what it is that you want to know. Hmm. So would a design be something like a case series versus a case study? versus a randomized control trial, that kind of stuff? Yeah. Well, that'll be good. I'll be looking forward to, to reading that. Yeah, I think it'll be helpful to to anybody who doesn't isn't sure where to get started okay, because good. sometimes those words are a little confusing. What's What was the name of the university? It's Winona State University. A lot of these university websites for the librarian sites have good research information. Those librarians, they know stuff. Oh, they're such smart people. I love them. They're our friends too. They are. They are. They love to help us do our research. I dated a, a librarian once and she was just fascinating. The amount of reading that she did, I would just eat dinner and just like, you keep talking, I'll keep eating. This is fascinating. Yeah. And when we were at Kessler, you know, I started out in 1999 in research and we still had the Journal of PT in huge bookcases across the back wall. That's, you know, the internet wasn't there yet. It, It was just starting to get there, but we had librarians and we had a library at the research department at Kessler. And, you know, I'd come in and I'd be like, boy, I really want these articles. And they'd go, go to the librarian and they'll bring you the articles. I'm like, they're not going to just give me the articles. And so I would go there and I go, look, I need everything on, you know, this outcome measure and I need stuff on uh, repetitive practice as it relates to whatever. And they go, okay. And then the next morning would be this pile of studies. It was great. Of course, with the internet, it's so much easier, but, um, but yeah, librarians are cool. I think that's the point I was trying to make. Librarians are cool. Well, they are cool people. I love that you brought this up about the library where you worked, because if you are a clinician and you're busy and you don't have the time to do the research, if you work at a teaching hospital or a teaching organization, they're likely affiliated with a university where they likely have a library. And those librarians are very happy to do that research for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm trying to remember how you access it, because I work for a school too. And I know that there's a, some sort of portal where you can say, look, I need help finding X. Like you don't have to go to the library no. and go through the Dewey Decimal System. I mean, you can go in there like and, and say, you can email them and say, look, I'm looking for this. Can you help me? And and just reach out and touch someone. Well, we actually, in our at the school that I teach at, we have what's known as an embedded librarian. And we can get librarians for our courses where we do research in them. And they love it. They get so excited to be in a class with us. Wow. That is yeah. cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So ours is actually right in Blackboard. We use Blackboard as our learning management system. And there's information about how to do research right in there. And then being able to set up an appointment with the librarian. I want to talk about how sometimes clinicians make mistakes when they assume that their clinical expertise is research, that something they observe clinically is correct because they observed it clinically. So here's a good example. I treated you and you're getting better. So my treatment helped you get better. Now there's an old saying about this, correlation is not causation. This is why in clinical research, you have a control group. Maybe they would have gotten better without you. Maybe they would have gotten better faster without you. We talked about with brain injury, the way that there's this period during the subacute phase where a huge chunk of the brain, the penumbra is 
rushing back online. Everybody during the subacute phase is gonna get better, almost everybody. Right. So if you work in subacute, you can go, I'm a miracle worker. I come in, they come in, they're doing terrible and then they leave and they're doing a lot better. So I'm doing something right. Well, we don't know. And that's why in clinical research, you would have a control group that would get nothing or get a sham treatment or get something else that we don't think that's that effective. Now this get in, gets into ethics things because you can't withhold treatment during the subacute phase. You got to give them the standard of care. So often you'll put the new thing up against the standard of care. But still, if you're a clinician and you're out there patting yourself on the back, be careful about that because sometimes correlation is not causation. Yeah. Um, and remember, it's not just the penumbra coming back online, but it's brain-derived neurotropic factor. And it's a whole bunch of other things that factor into the subacute phase accelerating recovery. So this brings me back to one of our first episodes where you were talking about all of what you just said. And I think I asked you the question, does therapy matter? And you said, absolutely. So can we talk about that a little bit and maybe pull some of that out? Yeah. So we have experiments in both animal models and in human models that show that if you don't provide rehab during the subacute phase, people and animals won't do as well. Now, again, you you hit up against an ethical issue because you can't withhold therapy from somebody to make them the control group. But still, we have a lot of evidence that shows that rehab does help compared to people who don't get it. Then the next question becomes, what kind of rehab is the best? And that's really what we're trying to suss out. Yeah. Another thing that happens is therapists will say, oh, I see you're getting better. You know, in, in clinical research, in peer-reviewed journal articles, they don't have seeing things. They measure things. Everything is measured and measured and measured. And this is why I mentioned before, you can see pre-post video. Vendors do this a lot. They've come up with this new thing and you got to get it and super great. And uh, here's the pre, here's the pre video. I'm an old man and I can barely walk. Here's the post video. Let's do some jumping jacks. Whee! You know, and we don't know what happened in between. So this is why we don't use video as a pre-post test. You have to collect data at the point that you're observing and it's a direct observation. And then there's other things like kinematics that don't lie. And there's fMRI that doesn't lie. It's just a bunch of data. So it's not quantified if you see somebody getting better. What does that mean? And this is, we talked about this when we talked about measuring recovery and how important it is to do that clinically. We did. And we talked about establishing a baseline and using the same measurement tools consistently over time, just to remind people. Yeah, that's important because you don't want an apples to oranges comparison. How about this one? I treated you. You must be getting better. And so here's the thing. And I, I had this idea when I was researching this. So um, if I treat you and I'm doing the measuring, I'm not a blinded rater. You look for double blind placebo controlled studies. And blinding means that the person doing the testing doesn't know what they got. So in a clinical setting, the same person who's doing the treatment is also doing the testing. And I had this crazy idea that, that will never happen because everybody hates spending money. But wouldn't it be great if the therapist did the treatment, but some outside resource came in to do the actual testing? They didn't know which therapist it was. They may not even know the specific pathology. They just come in and test them. I was the blinded raider in our lab for a very long time. That means that I couldn't know which group people were in. And it was hilarious because I'd walk into our 
our lab and everybody go, shut up, Pete's here. Don't talk about anything. We cannot afford to unblind him. We're halfway through the study. We can't do it. So it, it's good to be blinded so that you can make an honest assessment about whether or not somebody's getting better. Oh, no. I'm just thinking and thinking and thinking. That's good. Thinking is good sometimes. Well, yeah. I try to stay away from it. <laughs> just run on adrenaline. I found this one thing uh, online, and we'll put this in the show notes. So you look at the title. Is it interesting and relevant to your field? Is it likely to be a bridge between what we call benchside and bedside? Benchside is the research. Bedside is what the clinician is doing. So that is often revealed in the title. You read the abstract. You mentioned this before. The abstract will often tell you, did it work? It's the gist of the article. Then there's the introduction. And it's taken me a while, but I'm starting to love introductions because one of the things they do in the introduction is they tell you all the research that came before their research with all the references. I love introductions because it reinforces terminology. It explains the research that came before, but it also it defines the topic. So, for example, looking at any article that we've already looked at, it's like a little review, which kind of seals in information more. Because if you're not focusing on something every day of your life, some of those pieces of information, they just kind of trickle away. And then you read this article and you read the introduction, and you're like, oh, that's right. That's exactly what this is. And oh, this is why I'm excited again. And it kind of lays a nice foundation as you go into the research. Yeah, that's true. It'll give you a, a historical perspective. And sometimes the history will go back 100 years. And then it brings it into focus, the actual question that the researchers are in this article trying to answer. It's a great history lesson, as well as giving you all the foundational stuff that led them to this study. Then there's the methodology part. And you can answer questions, is the design suitable? This is what you were talking about. Yeah. Is that is that kind of study good for the clinical question you're trying to answer? And then there's the discussion. And I like the discussion because it, it's not the abstract, which is very clear and concise. It's a little bit more flexible. What did we learn? Are the results discussed? Are, are they valid and reliable? Often, this is where the, the researcher themselves will start to cut themselves down. Look, we did this, but we, we couldn't do that. We hope in the future, they can do this and that. And so, there's this sort of discussion about what were the limitations of the study? What were the, the good parts of the study? How can we make it better in the future? And it often tips their hand to maybe research that they'll do in the future or that they expect other labs to do going forward. That's always a nice piece when you're a student looking for the research that you have to do. You can read studies for topics that you're interested in. And then somebody has already likely told you what needs to be done next. You don't have to necessarily think of that yourself. Mm. Yeah. You just steal their ideas. Why not? That's what it's all about. Yeah. You know, that that is the weird thing about research. And the thing that I ended up really liking was that it wasn't just us working in a vacuum. We were reading other people's stuff. And, and at work, when you're in clinical research, they give you time to read this stuff and they encourage you to do it. Like, what other ideas do we have here? Because we need some other ideas to do clinical research. And so that was always really good that that you could look at these other articles in the discussion section and they would say, you know, you should look at this. And we go, well, maybe we should look at that. And then the, the last part of the study is often the conclusion. And, and this is where the clinical implications of whatever they found may be. You know, we think this means that this will work in this case for this population. 
So can we go back to what you were saying about bench side to bedside? Yeah. Well, what do you think of that? That's like a big, big topic. Well, it's a very big topic. And somewhere in the middle there is where the research falls off and the evidence doesn't get applied. Yep. It's a known problem. And there's a great website that I found that talks about the problems with applying evidence to practice. It's called the Knowledge Translation for Disability and Rehabilitation Research website. There are a ton of models to follow if you want to start to learn how to look at the research. If you have an idea for something that you want to implement, there are models that show you how to start to apply the information, like where it might fit, questions to ask before you apply it, questions to ask after you apply it. And it's it's very helpful. I just don't know that people know that it's out there. So we'll include that information in the show notes. Yeah, this is something that you've talked about quite a, a lot. And I think even in our introductory episode, you talked about, you know, can we move the ball down the field a little bit to get people to take what's in clinical research and implement it clinically? And so I think that something like that tool might be kind of helpful. Yeah, it's been helpful to me. One of the things that I found, like with mirror therapy, it's very effective and it's very easy to find a protocol in the literature because they just tell you what the protocol is. And I sometimes wonder if that's where people get stumped is with protocol. I know when I was working on the committee to put the early mobility program into place, there was a lot of different research with a lot of different um, protocols that people used, and we had to pick one. And so that made it a little challenging, but I wasn't the only person on the team. So when you put a whole bunch of different people's smart brains together, it's you can come up with something. Yeah. And I think David Sackett was maybe talking about this a little bit. So just because lab A said use XYZ version of it and lab B says use ABC version, that doesn't mean that in your clinic, you can't make an amalgam of the two. Mm -hmm. There is some flexibility there. And I expect, and I think that clinical research, clinical researchers are not more flattered than when clinicians actually use their research to do something clinically. You know, it happens so rarely. Um, we've been lucky in that modified constraint-induced therapy, which is one of the things that our lab looked at, has been implemented a lot. But people are modifying the modification all the time. And that's great. That's what we want. We want the rubber to meet the road and to have people actually use this stuff. Other Otherwise, we're just a bunch of ivory tower doofuses, you know, putting blue dye in a beaker and it, it doesn't make it just like the, the tree that falls in the wood that nobody listens to. So yeah, absolutely. Any tools that you can use to speed up the time between benchside, what happens in the lab, bedside, what happens uh, where clinicians actually treat people with it. Yeah, that might be a whole other topic. Did I mention this before? And Deb, you're going to have to tell me if I did, and then I'll cut it out of this one, because I think I did in one of the podcasts. You know, in, in rehabilitation, nobody dies of bad rehab. So there's not a, a huge push to shorten the lag time. And in rehab, it's often 15 to 20 years between benchside and bedside. Maybe that's getting quicker. I, I'm not super sure it is. But, you know, clinicians often will go with the stuff that's ineffective that they feel comfortable with because they feel comfortable with it. Yeah. I don't think we should cut this out. I think that 
sometimes we just need to keep hearing things over and over again. And then eventually it starts to stick into our brains and we, we, or maybe one day it just, you hear something and you think, well, have I been doing that? And what can I do differently? So I think sometimes there's clinical culture and it can be hard to maybe start something new just because of the culture in a clinic. Yeah. And then insurance companies and all the other Mm -hmm. pressures that are are happening. But, you know, I've had family members with with cancer. And in oncology, as soon as Sloan Kettering says, do X, everybody does X because the doctors will get sued out of their gourd unless they do X. If that's the greatest treatment, that's what you got to have. And the implementation, I've seen this happen a couple of times, is like a week. Surgeons will, you know, all of a sudden not, not do chemotherapy after a lumpectomy in breast cancer. They'll just do the lumpectomy and things will flip like a switch in oncology. But in rehab, it takes years and years and years for this to get going. So, um, so maybe we can help shorten that that time by having people not get migraines and throwing up when they're um, reading research. That'd That's be so great. That's kind of what I was thinking about when you were talking before, and I asked the question about people not getting rehab because I know that people are being sent home without rehab. They're just going from acute care to home, and there's a lag time with home therapy. And sometimes if people don't think they need it or they don't want it, they kind of resist that. And I know that people have the right to choose. But sometimes when you're in that environment where it's more of a rehab and you're still in the hospital and people are encouraging you and helping you understand why you would benefit from it, that maybe maybe your outcomes might be a little bit better. And so- So is that the research perspective from the patient's perspective? This This is my personal experience right before I ended my time at the hospital, because there were a lot of people who were being sent home from acute care, not going to rehab. And I'm not saying that they needed rehab, but they probably need some rehab. And sometimes people, they don't drive, so they would then need home care. And home care therapists tend to not be as good with neuro interventions as a neuro outpatient facility. You know, I, I did these talks forever and I could always tell the home care therapist because it was the complete iconoclast in the room. And there was, I do talks where a third of them, like in Oklahoma, there's so many Indian reservations that need rehab services that they're, it's all home care. They just go out to the reservation and it's a, you know, it could be a five hour drive to get them out there. They treat multiple people and then they come back home. But yeah, it was home care is such an interesting thing. And I, it was often people that were dressed a little bit differently and they were a little bit more scruffy and a little bit more individualistic. I think maybe they would argue a little bit uh, with your um, perspective that maybe they're not as aggressive or not as up on the latest research or whatever. It depends on the therapist. I'm trying to start a fight. I know. There's good therapists yep. everywhere. I'm not saying there aren't. Yes. <laughs> I know you're not. Okay. So all I have to talk about now is the best resources for finding clinical research. And I bet you have some. I got a bunch. Do you want me to start with this or? Sure. Go ahead. So the first thing I want to talk about are clinical trials. So you're, if you're a person who's had a brain injury, you might want to get involved in a clinical trial. It is the currency with which those of us who work in clinical research work. Without participants, we can't do the studies. So I'm going to just pitch this a little bit. The National Institute of Health has a website that will tell you every clinical trial that's going on. And then you can type in your zip code 
and it can tell you if it's going on in your area. And then it'll tell you if you would qualify. And then it'll have a phone number of the principal investigator or their team. And you can call them up and say, I think I'd qualify for this. Um, what do I get? Well, you know, we provide free transportation and the control group is going to get standard of care therapy for free. And the experimental group will get standard of care therapy plus this other intervention that we're thinking about doing. So maybe you should come on in and we'll test you and we'll see if you qualify for this study. And all these are going to be on the show notes. So that's the National Institute of Health. It's at clinicaltrials.gov. Then there's one called CenterWatch, which coalesces both of those databases. It's centerwatch.com. And um, and you can find a clinical trial that, that you might qualify for and get free stuff. Why not you? Now, all of the clinical research ends up in one place, and it doesn't even matter if it's first in Japanese. It'll be translated into English, be put in one place, PubMed. And that is, what is that at? Is that PubMed.org? I think so. But anyway, it always just shows up like a link and I just click on it. Yeah. Yeah. You Google it. You Google PubMed, one word, P-U-B-M-E-D, and boom, it comes right up. That'll be everything. That'll be everything. And one of the things that you can do once you get there is there's this column on the left and it'll say, oh, what kind of study do you want? Do you want a clinical trial? Do you want an editorial? Do you want a letter? You know, what kind of, and one of the things that you can choose is a meta-analysis. And I mentioned this before, meta-analysis is a study of a study. It's all the studies. Somebody looked at it and some studies are really good. They're randomized. They're controlled. All of the testers are blinded. It's a blinded controlled study. And they had 2000 people in the study. Well, that's a really good study. And it's going to have a lot of weight in a meta-analysis. Whereas another smaller study that had 10 people and they weren't blinded and it wasn't run that well, that'll get some weight, but not nearly as much. And they run it through the, the meat grinder and they spit out, this thing works or it doesn't work, or we still don't know if it works. Always go to a meta-analysis first. It just saves you so much time. The most trusted meta-analysis is the Cochrane Library, named after the aforementioned Archie Cochrane. I just love the name Archie. It reminds me of comic books. It's the most trusted clinical bottom lines, systematic reviews, and meta-analysis, and it has tons on brain injury. You know, Pete, one of the things that I found in my research is the Students for Best Evidence website, which is part of the Cochrane organization. And it's for people who are interested in research and who like research. And you can contribute or you can just read, but it might be a nice place to start reading some things that aren't super scientific, but hearing from people who are interested in science. A sort of entree into research. Is it like a, I don't, I've never seen it. Is it Well, first of all, it's going to be in the show notes. But second of all, is it like a discussion between people that are discussing different pathologies and how to treat them? Um, It's a blogging community for students by students. And so a student might say, hey, I just read this article and it's really fantastic. Here's the link. What do you guys think? And then they start to discuss it. Yeah, they have a a journal club. So tips for setting students up in a journal club. So that could be beneficial for anybody who wants to start a journal club. And they don't have to be super formal. It can just be somebody picks an article and a bunch of people read it and talk about it. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. I think online, it would be really good because you'd have a bunch of voices involved. Yeah. One of the best resources ever is the Evidence-Based Review of Stroke Rehabilitation. It's the Canadians. I don't know what the heck it is about Canada and stroke, but they do amazing work. There's this guy, Bob Tiesel or Robert Tiesel. He's an MD. He's a physiatrist. And I've been following this guy forever. He's just absolutely brilliant. If you go on YouTube, 
and you type in Bob Tiesel, or sorry, Robert, I think he pronounces it Tiesel, Robert Tiesel. So it's T-E-A-S-E-L-L. You go on YouTube, just watch his talks. They're mind-blowingly brilliant. And he just brings all the stuff about stroke recovery into this tight focus. It revolves around University of Western Ontario, which is in London, Ontario, in Canada. And um, the evidence-based review of stroke rehabilitation is just this amazing resource that gives a lot of great clinical bottom lines. You don't have to waste a lot of time. It's written in layman's terms. It gives you all the bottom lines right up front, and then you can pursue more if you're interested. It'll be in the show notes, of course, but you can Google EBRSR. So it's Evidence-Based Review of Stroke Research, EBRSR. If you Google that, you'll find it. Once you get there, there's evidence reviews. So basically, um, all of the treatment options that revolve around stroke, do they work or don't they work or don't we know yet? All put out in layman's terms. And then for a more technical thing, there's a clinician's handbook that allows you to see how you might implement the stuff that does work in your clinical practice. That sounds handy. The evidence reviews include lower extremity interventions, upper extremity interventions, hemiplegic shoulder pain, and um, chronic regional pain syndrome. Well, that's a good topic right there. Like shoulder hand syndrome. A lot of times when the shoulder subluxes, the entire arm suffers and you get chronic regional pain syndrome or you get reflex sympathetic dystrophy or shoulder hand syndrome, whatever they're calling it this week, they keep changing the name, but that's what that's all about. Can you can you help people with stroke reduce their pain in that hemiparetic shoulder? Then there's a whole chapter on post-stroke cognitive disorders, perceptual disorders, aphasia and apraxia, dysphagia, that's trouble swallowing, and all the interventions. There's all the interventions right there. Um, nutritional, wait, people who have a stroke often ask, what should I be eating to help my brain? There's nutritional interventions following stroke, medical complications, post-stroke depression, something you talk about a lot because you cannot recover if you're depressed. How to reintegrate into the community, outcome measures, something we've talked about. But if you want a full list of outcome measures and then how to do them, it's the EBRSR, the Evidence-Based Review of Stroke Research. Then in the clinician's handbook, an overview of brain reorganization, neuroplasticity, motor rehabilitation for the lower extreme motor rehabilitation for the upper extremity, cognitive rehab. It's not that they cover completely disparate different things. It's that one's a little bit more technical for the clinician, but certainly stroke survivor. Look, here's the thing. I cannot tell you how many stroke survivors and other people with brain injury who are smarter than me, even after their brain injury. It pisses me off. I mean, I'm like, dude, you've had a brain injury. Can you dumb this down a little bit? These people can often be brilliant. And this is something I've talked to my sister about this. I have an older sister, Wendy, who had a really bad traumatic brain injury uh, when she was like 22 or or so. She was on the New Jersey Turnpike coming back from Christmas vacation and her car tumbled a bunch. She was in a coma for the next long time. And uh, and she, she came out pretty good. Here's the weird thing about her. They tested her IQ in like high school and they tested her IQ a few months after the car accident where she had like really bad brain injuries. They had a tube coming out of her head to reduce the pressure and the whole thing. I went there, I was like 18 or 19 years old. And I just was reduced to tears when I went into there when she was still hospitalized in, the, in acute care. She, they tested her IQ after the accident and it was slightly higher. You know how our IQ goes up over the arc of our life. And then it's sort of, you know, around our age, it starts to level off a little bit, but it does tend to go up because we test better after a while. Her IQ went up. I'm like, and this kid, she was always smarter than me. 
It always pissed me off. And here she has a brain injury. I'm like, finally, I'm smarter than you. But no such luck. Still, still no. Still the dumb part of the family. Ah, what are you going to do? Anyway, so uh, cognitive rehabilitation, that comes in there. Uh, medical complications after stroke and then depression. So within that information, are the articles, the articles are listed there, the, the research supporting these interventions and what works? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, all the references are there. Equate this to a meta-analysis. It's always true. In a meta-analysis, they're always going to include the original research. If you want to get into that, it's there. But if you don't want to get into it, they make it super simple to access a whole bunch of stuff. Are protocols listed in that information yes. that you're talking about? That's and it'll amazing. Have a chart. It'll have a chart of the dosages and how they did it. Now, if you wanted to implement something clinically, then that at that point, I would go to the original article and see what the researchers actually did. But they do have a chart there that lays out the dosages, well, the dosages in the entire intervention and everything that was involved. So it's shorthand for the thing that comes out of the article. Thank you. Now, the same group does another one for moderate to severe acquired brain injury. So it's the same thing. It's just for all forms of brain injury. The other one was specifically for stroke. And obviously, there's a lot of overlap. But some of the things they talk about, again, dysphagia, trouble swallowing, interventions for cognitive issues, fatigue, and sleep disorders after acquired brain injury. And remember, stroke is an acquired brain injury. A lot of people don't sleep well afterwards. Mental health issues, seizures. 10% of stroke survivors end up with epilepsy. There's something about the stroke and acquired brain injury too. They often have seizures. So what can you do about that? Heterotropic oscillation. This is this thing where there's weird bone growth after a stroke or after a, a brain injury, community reintegration, pediatric implications, acute interventions, traumatic brain injury, and older age. What do you do if the person's also geriatric? And then it, it has a whole bunch of assessments, tells you how to do them. Wow. This episode is worth it just for this. Yeah, the EBRSR. I've been a huge fan for a long time, and I've been preaching about it for a long time. Now, I mentioned... PubMed, which is at pubmed.gov. I found it. It's pubmed.gov. And one of the things that you can do is it has a bunch of checkboxes on the left side. And one of them is, do you want free articles only? Because articles can be really expensive. And if you don't have access like you two to a major university, or I do to a, to a smaller college, you don't want to have to pay 40 bucks for an article. That's just insane. One of the things that you can do, here's a quick trick that you can do to get free stuff. Put the name of the article and then just the letters PDF after it. And sometimes the article will just come in as a PDF. You'll get lucky. But if you go to pubmed.gov, which is all the peer-reviewed stuff, it asks, do you want free full-text articles? You click that box, everything that comes up is going to be free. But if you want only the free stuff, there is an offshoot of PubMed, and that's called PubMed Central. And in PubMed Central, whatever you search for, it's all going to be free for you. Now, you can't, you know, you can't print out 20 articles and sell them on the local corner, but, but you can use them for your own consumption, for your patients, for other clinicians, for caregivers, whoever needs them. You know, PubMed's Pete, I'd be, I'd be pretty, pretty interested to know who would buy those articles on the corner. 
Extra, extra, come and get it. The latest <laughs> unmodified constraint induced therapy. You'll never believe what they came up with. This is amazing. Nobody would do that. I would, I would probably buy that. If it was like the 15 cents, I would do it. Yeah, that's not going to So happen. here's a little fun fact. You know, in a lot of these articles, the contact information for the researchers is made available. And I have been known to reach out to researchers over the course of my career, and they do respond to me. And oftentimes, they're very happy, very happy to share their information, some of their PowerPoint slides, you know, stuff that will help you in your practice, which goes back to what you were saying in the beginning, where, where researchers want us using their information. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can get the biggest expert in the world to answer your question. I got a friend, he works at Children's Hospital here. Um, he's, it's a, our kids play with their kids and a half forever and they live around the corner. The guy is one of two or three experts on pediatric rheumatoid problems. Okay. This guy's an expert in that and he does research. And he on the research is his email address. Yeah. And yeah, I I absolutely agree with you. You can get the biggest expert in the world to answer your questions. Now, let's say you have a pathology and you know, I don't know, you have cancer. You can find the biggest expert in the world. I'm not saying that they would necessarily tell you what to do, but they might nudge you in the right direction. You know, there's a clinic not too far from you that's really well renowned for that kind of cancer. Maybe you should go there hmm. for that kind of thing. So yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Go and more often than not, they'll answer your question. They seem to be pretty nice people. So other free stuff that you can get, the Journal of Stroke is free after the first year of publication, believe it or not. That's good to know. Advances in clinical neuroscience and rehab, that's free. Medline Plus is another free thing. And all of these are going to be links that we're going to put in the show notes. There's one called NIH Bookshelf, which is free online books and documents. Biomed Central, it comes from Springer, the people that publish my book. All free articles, Biomed Central, it's called, and a bunch of other ones. Again, instead of talking about them all, we'll just put them all in the show notes. Yeah, there are a bunch. What else should we talk about with regard to research? Kind of want to go back to that, the knowledge translation website. They have some really neat charts in there about how how they rate their evidence, how, how they review it. And there's also some information on uh, a scale that they use for consumer orientation. So it helps you know if the article is geared towards consumers or not, which I think is helpful. And then they have another chart on readability, which when we're creating literature for the public, we need to consider how we're writing. We, sh- we should be writing at a lower education level so that everybody can understand it. And oftentimes people who tend to experience strokes can be people who have lower education levels. And we want to make sure that they can understand what we're trying to help them know about so that they can become healthier. There's a, I don't know if I told you this before, but I had a tape bound my book before I found a publisher. I used to sell it at my seminars. Oh, I didn't know that. And the publisher said, yeah, we like the book, rewrite it, rewrite the whole darn book because 
because you've written it for clinicians. We want it for everybody. Mm. And so you're absolutely right. There's a readability index and there's a calculator. It's called the smog calculator. I forget what it stands for, but the G is for gobbledygook, smog calculator. And you can take like a paragraph or a bunch of paragraphs, throw it in there and it'll tell you the grade level, which something can be read and understood on the first try. So yeah, it's definitely a great tool. Yeah. If we can't make this stuff simple, yeah, it's not worthwhile. And I think that that's kind of what our podcast was supposed to be about originally. Like, we got to make it so that people that are falling asleep, people that have had brain injury, people that are not trained in this stuff can understand it. And I think it's, we should press clinicians to be able to speak to all of us and press researchers to. I agree. I think, um, I'm glad you're bringing this up because I have had some people lately tell me some com- conflicting information that they're being told in the clinic to speak more medically to their patients and clients, which I don't necessarily agree with because not everybody has taken anatomy and physiology. And if if they did, a lot of times it's it's years ago. And, you know, why can't we just talk about a joint or emotion and demonstrate it? in terms that we all understand. Mm. I would say one good thing about knowing the nomenclature in a way that the patient doesn't know is it gives you credibility. That's well, the one thing is like agreed. you say the word and then you backtrack to explain the word and yes. then they go, ooh, they knew the word and then they explain mm-hmm. the word. So, but other than that, yeah, I agree with yeah. you. It's just make it as simple as possible. Yeah. One of my best times in the clinic was when I pulled out my goniometer and the guy I was working with, he just, he couldn't believe that he learned a new word and he was going to go right up to his room and call his friends and ask all of them if they knew what a goniometer was. Wow, that's a potential nerd right there. Oh, we had a blast, of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Those are good ones. Mm-hmm. Or a dynamometer. Took oh, me like yeah. five years to figure out that word, to just not be afraid to say it, dynamometer. Yeah. It's hard to say. It the is. other one is the sphygmomanometer. Oh, that's, that's for taking blood pressure, right? Yeah. And the dynamometer is for measuring strength. Muscle grip, strength. Stre- grip strength. Yeah. Grip strength. Well, yeah. well, at work, I do the three jaw chuck. I do tip to tip. I do um, key grasp. But so don't we, you use a pinch meter for that? That's what it is. But all three of those are on that oh. one dynamometer that looks a oh. little bit different than the big grippy one. Okay, anyway, cool. We're getting into the weeds. I know. There's one more thing that I want to bring up. If people just um, Google evidence-based resources, there's a pyramid that can help people understand the levels of research and it starts at the lowest and then goes up up to the top, which is um, more, what's the word I want? Like um, higher quality evidence. Oh, I see. So it's, it's really kind of cool. It starts off with background opinion or background information and expert opinions being at the very bottom and then getting moving up to case controlled studies like case reports or case studies, cohort studies, randomized control trials, and all the way up to systematic reviews. Oh, okay. So it's a nice visual to kind of wrap your head around what it is you're looking at. And what's that pyramid called again? Um, it is called an evidence pyramid. It just looks at like the rigor and the quality of the evidence. Evidence pyramid. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, yep. thanks, Deb. As usual, I had a ball. Me too, Pete. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email 
at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.